Footloose dances for you. Um, that was originally intended to embarrass my teenage daughters, which didn't work. They have this kind of like, yeah, nothing you can do to... Instead, it comes back to bite me. I'm not used to the world of cell phone cameras, I guess. And if that footage exists of my karaoke night on Monday, I pay big money to see it go away. So you guys are like, you're a pastor. You don't have big money. You're right. But a fella can dream. It is, uh, it's the, the message that we're going to be going through this morning takes on new meaning, having gone through what we went through last night, really all week but culminating in the amazing event of Night to Shine last night. I know that this is one of many things that we do here at Faith, but there's something very unique about this event in so many ways, or there's lots of things unique, I should say. I won't go into all of them, but one of the great things is how it brings the body of Christ together. And I get to, um, (laughs) they gave me a job description last night of pastor. It's like, well, what am I going to go pastor? Everyone had like real jobs to do. And they're like, you just stay off to the side. Um, float, do what you, you know, do. And, but what was great is I got to observe and I got to watch and, and I'm, and it, I wasn't having this kind of week where I was like, I can't wait for Sunday. I can't wait to preach this message. It was all kinds of frustration and weirdness and all these kinds of things unrelated to night to shine. And it was, it was this, it was seeing that happen that, the Lord was like, you see what you get to do? This is like your nine to five. You get to do this. And it was just amazing and eye-opening and uh, made a lot of great friends last night. One of my new friends is JJ, and he's here this morning right in the back. Mr. JJ, so great to have you with us this morning. Um, A very passionate uh, performance of I Can Only Imagine last night in karaoke. It was pretty awesome. Uh, but JJ came, uh, we, we remember JJ from last year because he had a very, um, incredible suit. And, um, and, and people would just say, is he the guy with the suit? That's how cool that suit was. And how do you outdo that? And he came this year and outdid it. He just had another awesome, like the suit version two and stuff. So, uh, JJ, it's our pleasure to have you as our guest this morning. And, uh, JJ saw me in line and he was waiting to get a, a photo last night and said, how do I get to church? And I said, and he said, I, I can get here sometimes on my own, uh, different weeks, but not every week. And how do I do that? And so I said, we can make that happen. Um, and so, uh, just let that uh, go where you want it to go. But, um, but JJ has been a, a really easy guy to get to know. And uh, I think he's going to be a friend of this ministry here uh, for the time uh, to come. So good to meet you, JJ. Um, this morning is, uh, like I said, it's it's one of those things where we're in, we're in the second phase of this vision, what I'm calling Faith's 2020 plus vision, because I don't want us to be this kind of thing that we can measure in the calendar and say, all right, we've done it. Now what's next? These are the types of things I believe the Lord is speaking to us as a church to make sure we never lose sight of. And the variations of some of the goals that we might have, the um, types of things that we might do to enhance these things, those will come and go. But the, the DNA aspect of what we're talking about here is something that comes from Scripture for every church. And so I think we have the opportunity to emphasize these things. A couple of weeks ago, we started down this vision path saying that that faith, we were going to strive to practice a relevant gospel. That we would wrestle, what does it mean to have the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is it really for? Is it just for newbies? 
Is it just for people that are walking through the gates of the kingdom for the first time? Hey, I prayed a prayer of salvation. Now I got to figure out church. Or is the gospel so powerful, so intricate, so invasive that it goes every step of the way through our journey together? And of course, we're arguing that it is that powerful, that it is that invasive, that it is that applicable, that we are going to strive to practice the gospel. And we talked about how the church could actually be seen as a practice, sort of like a law practice or a medical practice, that we would be a gospel practice. But today we come to talk about what the nature of the church is, what God's intention for the church is, and how we can carry out God's intention for the church. And again, it, it was it was preparing to be a little bit like we preachers have sometimes a tendency to do. Okay, people, you got to get better at this. And, and it's not even what my intention was. I just think it's our natural bent. I think it comes with the calling. God says, you need to preach, and then you just get angry at everybody. I don't know. I don't know how that plays out. I'm not angry at you. Just saying. Quiet crowd in here this morning. How many of you are still asleep from night to shine last night? Um, Bacon Row, you are permitted to nap um, today. In fact, if you guys want to sit behind them and quick shoulder rubs and stuff. Here's where we start off with this. The scriptures tell us, this is instruction that we use often in our marriage counseling in Ephesians 5. The Bible gives us instruction on how to view the church, but he does it through the relationship of husband and wife. In verse 25, the scripture says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. I'm going to pause right there in the spirit of Thanksgiving coming up. What's our date? Today's the ninth. You got five days, right? Just saying. Is that right? 14th, right? When preachers say I'm preaching to myself this morning, now you know I mean it. So husbands, love your wives. How did Christ love the church, how did he love his bride? He gave himself up for her. She must be very important to him. She must be precious in his sight. She must be um, worth his, his sacrifice for that in order for that to happen. Why did he do this? Verse 26 says that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, there was a purpose to this rescue. There was a purpose to this union. He says, I'm taking you as you are, but I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to perfect you. I'm going to bring you along. And guys, that is not advice for Valentine's Day. Do not say, I know you're pretty good, but I intend to make you better. Do not say that. Jesus can. He died for her. He's God. He has the power to do that. It's not your job to just clean her up and everything. But there is advice and instruction for the husband that God uh, married his bride, us being the church here, to not leave us the way we are, to cleanse us, to perfect us, to prepare us for the wedding day. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. You think about that word splendor. It's like she walks in the room and everyone went, you're marrying her. This is impressive beauty. This is jaw dropping without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I saw in in moving form last night, also in Monday, we'll have a chance probably in the future to explain why we keep saying Monday and last night. But I saw this bride being 
developed, I guess is a weird word, but, but beautified, perfected, uh, cleaned up and, and moving in that direction of, of you can see the Lord's hand over the whole thing and the pieces coming together and, and you could just sense, as Pastor Gary said earlier, you can sense his pleasure with this is how she's shaping up to be. And it's seen in moments, just brief moments like we had last night, but certainly the call is for more. The gospel calls us to live for a higher purpose than our own wants, our own wishes, our own ambitions, our own desire to even participate in great things. She is more than just simply an organization for us to belong to, to give us that sense of of connection with something, because there's plenty of organizations out there that can provide that. And she is going to last much longer than our ability to figure any of this out, to get this right, to to steer it in the way that it's supposed to go. All of us may fail collectively, and yet the Lord's church will still endure because it's his, because he paid for it. And he promised, I, I, I married her to clean her up and to preserve her for that day. He's got a promise that he intends to keep. This gets us in the context of how does Jesus view us? How does he view what we do here? Is it based on our success, our outward appearance? Is it on the organizational flow, any of those other things that we have a tendency to get tripped on? Or is it something deeper than that? Why would he die for it? Well, I love Paul's instruction to the church. We've been spending some time in 2 Corinthians, which we'll get back to, Lord willing, in the coming month or so. But he also spent some time encouraging young Timothy, Timothy being a, a, an apprentice of his growing up in the ministry and now set off to lead an assembly. And Paul is saying, so I'm going to give you some instruction. But as Paul always has to do, he basically has to apologize for not being there because he never seems to his plans don't always seem to be in match with the Lord's and the Lord has him going down different paths and he gets imprisoned. He goes through all these things. And so he says to Timothy in his first letter, chapter three. For our major text here this morning, he says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, I confess to you, when I see this text, my eyes lock in on the word behave because this is something manageable for me. I can find all places, all kinds of places in the scripture, in particularly in the New Testament epistles that tell the church how to shape up, tell us how to do church stuff better. And and it's convenient for me. It's clear to me. The list you can delineate. You and I walk off going, okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to do better. But I think what the gospel calls us to in this passage is to focus on how the Lord thinks about this assembly, about this uh, institution, if you will, about this thing that he died for, that he is preserving for a better day, and to see if those things aren't compelling enough for us to take it seriously. Paul told, tells Timothy, I'm writing these things so that people will know how to behave in the household of God. You may remember we've been walking through in in Second uh, Corinthians talking about the new covenant and how God in the Old Testament shows up in the temple and his glory comes into the Holy of Holies and only a select few are allowed to go in and meet him face to face in that sense. And their faces are glowing. Moses has to wear a veil. He's so, so bright and everything. And then the new covenant says, I will dwell in the hearts of my people. 
so that you and I become the embodiment of the glory of God that when we gather, when we gather together, we collectively are the household of God. That he no longer dwells in temples made with hands, as the scriptures would say. You and I have been adopted into a family. Now, when you first showed up here and you said, okay, I want to be a new Christian or I want to, I want to join faith. I want to be here. We didn't put a clipboard in your hand and say, now go out to the door and start evaluating everybody that walks through to see if they're your kind of people. You know, start, have your checklist, give us your description of who you think the ideal brother or sister is going to be. You've been adopted in the same family. You're going to help us pick the next siblings that we bring into this building. You didn't have that control. We don't have that control. God has adopted the people in this building, in this church, by his own design, by his own devices. You have responded to him by that specific call in your heart and in your life. And we didn't get to say whether or not you're our kind of people. Pretty risky. Kind of an organization does this. You have clubs, you have gangs, you have all these initiations. You've got to form yourself to be their kind of people. God says, yeah, just come on in. We'll make this work. Trust me. And, and that making it work becomes something much a higher standard than anything that we typically give ourselves to. You and I have been adopted into a family. I don't know if you've ever been through an adoption process before. I have not. But I know many of you have. Some of you have been on the receiving end where you've been welcomed into a family. And some of you have opened your home to welcome children into your family to be adopted. Clearly, everything is new when they walk into this process. It's new for the parents. It's new for the kids. It's new for any siblings that were already there. Everything is strange. And we can't even uh, begin to quantify how weird it is and how different it is because it's our normal that they're walking into. After saying this in the first service, I had somebody come up, a family that we've known for many years, who themselves have gone through the adoption. And she said, it was like I wasn't realizing how strange it was for that child to walk into our family. I figured, you know what? You've only been alive a few years. It should only take you a few months to figure out how we do things here. And then it was that realization they had of like, it absolutely does take time. This is all very strange. It's, it's new in its tone. It's new in its behaviors. You know, we all have very similar elements in our families. We just do things differently. I assume all of you eat something from time to time. Unless you're above that New Year's resolution, you're still, you know, carrying out two months in. You haven't eaten a thing. But we all eat. But some of us will see to it that we have a family dinner every single night. Or some of us will say, well, we can't do that. Our schedules are too crazy, so it's every whatever night. Or some of us would say, we don't even attempt it because there's soccer practices, this and that and everything. So we're grabbing sandwiches and jumping in the minivan. The, the reality is that you've all figured out how to feed yourselves. You just carry it out in different ways. So depending on what context you come from, you walk into, you got to figure out, how do they do this here? How do you do this whole feeding yourself thing? or our entertainment choices, or whether or not we have our family movie nights, or that kind of thing, or what decisions we make along those lines, or how we keep our event calendars and stuff. It's all very new. We have a tendency to forget that as the household of God. That as people walk in, maybe for the first time, the fifth time, or the twelfth time, this is all very strange. We've been adopted into a family. One of the words that I keep tossing around in almost every conversation I have about these things is the word tone. 
I believe tone is that, that glue kind of factor, if you will, that is intangible in it as a, as a, as a family unit, as a household, as a family has its tone, you start to pick up on what is the tone of this family? And it's my, my passion in life to have a tone of, of grace and forgiveness and, and understanding of where people are coming from. And I would love to be able to just sprinkle pixie dust on everybody and say, let's, let's have that be the tone at faith. I don't know how to infect that. I don't know how to change that. I don't know how to, to measure that or anything, but I believe it's important for us that while we're holding up truth and we're right on the things of scripture that we do so seasoned with such grace that people are patient with us while we're patient with them. And it gives them a path towards finding the hope that lies within us. I think tone is so important. I referenced a, an author named Ray Ortland. He's a, a pastor and he wrote a tiny little book called The Gospel. And I used a couple of quotes a couple of weeks ago. And so I'll reference him again as well as others for our time this morning. But he gives this tiny little formula that I like. He says that a church, the household of God, will look like gospel, which we've said is like the answer to everything. It's going to be gospel, gospel, gospel. We hold that up high. That is our doctrine. Gospel plus safety plus time. The gospel is this um, opportunity we have for multiple exposures of a message of grace. And it's not just a blanket message that we can just throw on top of everybody's situation. Grace is so personal and it's so intimate. It finds people in the, in the crux of where they are. And so as we struggle and we wrestle with a communicating that specific grace that that person needs only found through the person of Jesus Christ then they start to hear that with the ears that the Lord's given them in the circumstances of life that they've been walking through. And so as, an, as, a, as a ministry, as a household of God, we look for every opportunity to drip that message of grace, that the gospel is something that we do in multiple exposures. A couple weeks ago, I referenced David Platt, the great preacher, and his definition of the gospel, he says it's the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. What a rich message that is. Not, not easy to just break down and say, okay, I get where he's coming from there. It's, it's worth diving into and say, what does that really mean? If I believe that this only comes through the person of Jesus Christ and that he is God in the flesh, then this is real. This is personal. It's arrived on my doorstep. What do I do with it? The gospel is the key element, the beginning place for our household of God. But again, according to Ortland, we add safety into the mix. The same woman that talked to me in the, after the first service said, the, the first thing that our daughter said, one of the first things that she said was, does this mean, because she was adopted into a family, does this mean I don't have to be afraid anymore? We have a tendency to forget that in the, the life of church, we've been doing this now for a long time. We might be comfortable where we are. You might have the same row you sit in week after week. You might recognize every song that we play and do. And you're familiar with where the books of the Bible are, or whether I'm in the New Testament or the Old or any of those things. We forget that for so many people, they're walking into such a foreign context that they have come from a place that promises them no safety to wondering if it lives here. 
Somebody once said that when a sinner is repentant, that is, I recognize that I've done is wrong as an offense to God and I've probably offended somebody else. And because I hear the, the forgiveness of the Lord, I'm going to walk away from that. I'm going to turn the other way and remove myself from it. When a sinner is repentant, the leadership of the church should protect that sinner from the church. It's sad that today's day and age we have to say that because so often as people repent of their sin and confess their sin, we might say, okay, I know on paper I'm supposed to be okay with the fact that they just repented, but I'm really having a hard time not judging them. It's difficult for us to be those people, isn't it? The second half of this quote, though, says that when a sinner is defiant, that means when they've been challenged on their sin, even if it's gentle and it's corrective, and they say, I'm just not going to change. I want to be who I want to be. I'm going to do what I want to do, and you can't change me. Then the leadership of that church should protect the church from that sinner. Again, the uncomfortable part of having to do this thing called the household of God. And safety goes both ways, that there's a safety that's expected to shepherd over the flock to keep those kinds of attitudes and cancerous um, uh, behaviors and things out of the assembly, but at the same time be welcoming enough that where people are trying to figure it out and find forgiveness and everything, that they can say, I'm struggling with this. What have you got for me? And that we don't jump down their throat immediately. And the last aspect of this formula is to include time. You know, one of the hardest things that um, we have to wrestle with when we're right on stuff, and we're all right a lot, aren't we? Aren't we all always right? It's so hard not to tell people why they're wrong. It's so hard not to be the only voice of rightness in another person's life, isn't it? A lot of the times when we're talking in marriage counseling and stuff, it's, it doesn't really matter which side it's going. It's not a gender thing necessarily or anything. It's just a matter of when will you stop telling your spouse who they need to be and how they need to be? If we believe that the, that the, what the Lord promised was, I, it's better for you if I go away because if I go away, there'll be a comforter that comes and lives inside each and every one of you that surrenders your heart to me. And follows me, I will give you a comforter who will walk with you and he will be present. He'll be the voice of truth. He will illuminate truth in your life so that we as other human beings could actually trust that he exists and take a step back and say, I don't know. There was somebody very dear in my life that used to say this all the time. I don't know how the Lord's speaking to them. And I remember just wrestling with that saying, well, I know because it's right here in the scripture. And he says, no, I don't know personally what they need to hear and when they need to hear it. I don't know what tone of voice they need to hear it in. I don't know the timing. I don't know any of those things. I don't know how the Lord is speaking to them. So he would give time and room to breathe. That's a lot of faith. I want action. I want deadlines. Do I give it a week? Do I give it a month? And the Lord says, I've got it figured out. You don't need to. Romans 15, fairly long passage here, about seven verses. We won't be able to break it all down, but very important for us in the context of what we're talking about. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves." That one verse alone, if that was our New Year's resolution, Lord, if I claim to be strong, if I'm as strong as I think you're making me, Show me the opportunities where I can bear with the failings of the weak. How inconvenient does that sound to you? 
How fun does that sound? You mean, Lord, that if I'm wanting to do this and I want to see this play out of my life, I want this to be a character trait of somebody to point to them, they really bared with the, with the failings of the weak. That probably means you're going to put weaker people in my path. I don't want weaker people in my path. I want stronger people. I want people that feed my kingdom. I want people that tell me what I need to hear because I feel weak most of the time. The Lord says, no, if you're to be strong, you will then carry a necessary obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, which is so uh, tempting in a church environment, is it? To say, I just want, I just want worship to be something I can enjoy today, or I want my seed, or I want this event to be on the date that I want. Any of those kinds, of, I just want things to match my wish list. Verse two: Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, not to give him what he wants, but to do what's best for him. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, Lord, fell on me. He says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, there's a key word, and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Can I be real honest with you? I don't think any of these things are easy, and I don't blame any of you for not wanting to do any of this. When I think of uh, bearing with the failings of the weak, and I have a tendency to see myself not as weak as everybody else because of my inflated view of my own progress, then when I hear about that, I have to endure and bear the failings of the weak. I go, man, that is really inconvenient. I don't even know how equipped I am for this. So Paul gives us two key words in this passage. Verse five says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, because it comes from him. What you will need to do this is endurance. It's exhausting and encouragement. You'll figure it out. You'll get it going. Just keep on going. Stay plugged in to grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, instead of just jumping to how we welcome people in, it's built up all this theology in us that what needs to come first in order of priority is a dismantling of me and a trust in him. Verse seven says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, as Christ has welcomed you. Imagine the grace that would pour out of you if if every interaction you had, and I don't know how we get there. I don't know how long it takes, but if this was our MO and we said, I want everybody to sense the fact that I too am broken because I needed this kind of forgiveness. I needed this kind of restoration and I know you do too. How can I help? This is what it means to be in a family. This is what it means to not gloss over the ugly parts or sweep them under the rug, but to actually approach one another with grace and with a, with a strategy in mind or a desire to work through a strategy or something that, that brings people forward. And yes, I'm willing to be inconvenienced. Why? Because you're family. What do we say to people that take care of us in the middle of the night or come at the drop of a hat or something? Like, we're family, of course. Anytime. Even if you're fighting with somebody in your family and they need you, you're like, okay, that fight is, we'll put that on the back burner because we don't need to deal with that right now. You need me right now, so I'll be there. How much more so could this be said about the church of God? What is the household of God? Secondly, the church is a living expression of the living God. Paul said it to us in, in the passage here to Timothy. 
He says that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, not just the church of God. That's a phrase that we would hear and be like, okay, yeah, church of God, he owns it. But the church of the living God, which means he's active in it. He's present in it. This isn't just an organization, like we said earlier, a club that you can belong to. It has a lot of the aspects of that, does it not? It can feel like an organization so many times. And because it's involving people and dates and all these kinds, it requires a lot of organization. See, please hear this. There isn't something more spiritual with chaos in a church. I, I get this all the time. We're talking with pastors and we're meeting and all this kind of stuff. And there's this tension of like, if you just trusted the Lord more, you didn't have to plan so much. And it almost seems like if we trust the Lord, we don't have to plan anything. And I see a balance in the two. I think the problem is, is that we overemphasize the plan and the building of an organization so that we can look at things that go well and we can say, hey, we're nailing this church thing. What if the Lord wanted to change our path? What if he wanted to say, you know, your plan fails, your dates, your deliveries, the attendance, the whatever, it just doesn't come through your numbers and giving or any of those things that you're going to have to trust me in this, that we say, you know what? It's not about our brilliant schemes. It's not about our, our counting on our plans and our, our strategies to pay off and to create what seems to everybody else to be a successful church. But what we hold up instead is that this is a living, breathing organism, not an organization only. Some organization will be needed. Some planning and strategy and just human thought and all those kinds of things are necessary. Even as living beings ourselves, we need health plans. We need meal regimens. We need alarm clocks and stuff. There's, there's structure that's built into our life, but it doesn't mean that that's where everything is, that the Lord could change those plans and he'd still be enough. That's our challenge. Our challenge at faith more specifically as we think about these things is how much attention do we give to the organization? How much attention do we give to just the, the ministering to people? And those are the areas that we feel like we, we really want to take advantage of and make some changes in. Uh, one of the great challenges I think we've had for a long time is the church has, has been a large body of people and uh, lots of programs and different things like that that really work well and we can put things on the calendar and, and expect them to be done well and, and to make an impression in our community and to involve people. All that stuff works great. But the piece that's always just been uh, hard to nail is how to shepherd God's people more intimately. And there always seems to be a trade-off. It's like, well, if you go to a big church, you don't get shepherded, so you have to go find a small church. And there's the responsibility of the individual Christian to not be so desiring of handholding all the time that they don't say, well, I can't go to that church because I can't get the pastor's attention. You see, there's just this, there's this balance that we have to work through. How do we work this out? But one thing's really clear to all of us on leadership is that there is an opportunity for us to, to be more engaged in the intimacy in the lives of our people. And we have to figure out how to start doing that. And one of the ideas that we've had and one of the things that we're going to be embarking on soon is, is, is looking after our membership because we have to start somewhere in this regard. And those of you that have gone through membership um, uh, classes and you've you know, made the, uh, the covenant statements of your partnership with us and everything, we believe that we have an opportunity to shepherd the members of this church even better than we have. And, and I shouldn't even say even. We just have an opportunity to do it better. And that represents for us about half of our attendance. We're a church of about 500 adults, another 100 or so kids. We've got about a 600-person church here and stuff on average. There are more that come through, but just as far as who shows up. And our membership is somewhere around half that. 
And you've seen the number of elders that we have, and you'd be like, okay, how are they going to do all that? Exactly. So one of the things that we thought we needed to address uh, ASAP if we're going to do this and do it well and not be stretched too thin is to increase that team. And that will be one of the first things that we seek to do is to, to continue to build that shepherding team so that the oversight and the spiritual care of God's people is done in a more effective, more communicative uh, way. And so we're really looking forward to, to moving in that direction, building that team, sifting through who's appropriate to invite now and, and those kinds of things. And then you would have the op- opportunity, dare I say obligation, to be welcoming of that in your life. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's not going to be super legalistic. It's not going to be like they're going to have 10 questions and you're going to have to have coffee every week and all this kind of stuff. But they're going to want to know how's it going with you. What can I pray for in your life? You're going to want to say, I need a ride to go get my groceries. Can you come pick me up? And I'm asking you, don't do that. They are there for our spiritual guidance and spiritual oversight, and they want to be able to look after the care of our souls well, as the scriptures would encourage them. And so we have to work out a balance. How does that come, give or take? But it's part of being in an accountable, regular, living, breathing family, the church of the living God. We also think that we're going to continue to build on this idea of what we've started for the last year or two to strengthen the understanding of what membership really is. That you and I, as we move into that covenant, we start to understand what our, what our responsibilities are, what's expected of us, what the Lord still needs to do in my life in order to prepare me for those things. And then a strange way to put this is we're going to reconnect with our connect groups. Pretty cute. Um, Connect groups is a fancy term for, it's a, it's a hip term if you want to be hip in church. It's a hip way of saying small groups. If you want to be hipper, you call them life groups. All the cool churches call them life groups. We're halfway cool, so we did a halfway cool name, our connect groups. Um, but we really believe that this is uh, a fundamental part of the ministry here at faith. Again, if you're talking about percentages, about half our people that come to faith are involved in a connect group somewhere. Some meet during the day, some meet at night, some meet on a week uh, end, some meet on a weeknight, all that kind of stuff. Some take a break in the summer, some keep on going. Some have been together for three months, some have been together for 13 years. But our connect groups are vibrant and they're for the most part healthy. But the one thing they express to us as we're going through transition is we feel pretty disconnected, ironically, from the overall ministry and vision of faith. And we said, that's something we got to fix. And so as Pastor Gary was able to announce earlier, and those of you that are uh, already ahead of the game because of Facebook and stuff, we were able to introduce Tom Sheridan as the new Connections pastor. And uh, we're very excited about his coming on board for all the reasons that Pastor Gary said. Um, and I'm probably going to repeat what he said a little bit. But Tom has been he's been uh, close to our family here at Faith for years. He and his wife, Debbie, and the kids and everything. We've seen uh, their family interact and just a great family. And we really um, love them just as people. But then about a year or so ago, we invited Tom to be an elder in training with the with the elder team. And it was within a few months, I'd say, maybe, Paul, that we were kind of going, how long does this training thing need to last? Because he was picking it up pretty quick and was really contributing to the shepherding that we were seeking to do as an elder team. And so um, I've been around Tom a lot, and I was surprised at how smart he was. I don't know. That's... <laughs> Welcome to the staff, buddy. 
it only just begins pretty soon. They'll be getting dancing videos of you up on the big screen. So, and we can find them. Um, but he really surprised us with, um, this is not a great term to use in church context and stuff, but a street sense that I think caught us all off guard and a, and a deeper wisdom there that uh, was something that we knew would help us out. And, and with Pastor Ben moving on and going to Solon and stuff, we knew that the, that was a very specific personality to try to fill and there would be a, a hole there that was left. And so we really think that Tom is the perfect fit for that. I apologize that there wasn't really like an announcement ramp up. Most of you didn't even know know that we'd even be interviewing this quickly for this, but we even didn't know, uh, honestly, it just started coming together and then storm cancellations and then some kind of installation thing happening last week, blah, 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 blah. So we're trying, we're getting better. Communication will improve, trust me. But uh, we were just so pleased to to introduce him, but we did it in just the nick of time because I think he starts like Wednesday or something. So uh, we were like, we don't want you to have to call and go, oh, you're new? Okay, so now you know. So we're excited about that. Why would we do this? Why do we care about this? Why do we have to put so much time, attention, specific, dedicated pastoral resources? I think we see it from Ecclesiastes 4. In verse 9, it says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you and I are going to uh, connect truly in the household of God, in this uh, living organism, we have to set our hearts and our intention toward connecting. I know that sounds basic, but think about how much we could do on autopilot, right? We, we've got so much habit and routine built in our lives that we think sometimes that this connection, this friendship, this deeper um, uh, three-chord strand that can't be broken is just going to happen naturally, and it doesn't. We go out and we find those relationships. We find those friendships, and we give ourselves to them. We take the spirit of what Paul was telling us, and we say, I am willing to be inconvenienced for the good of somebody else. I'm not just in it for me. And lastly, I'd say that we're going to focus on reclaiming disciple-making by making followers of Christ, which is truly the definition of being a disciple. We've made belief sometimes so easy. Christianity in general, we've made belief so easy. Add a little Jesus to your life. He's, he's added almost kind of like an inspirational meme on social media that Jesus is cool now in a lot of circles and sports circles and entertainment circles and all that kind of stuff, that if we started dropping some things about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, people are like, yeah, I just saw that the other day and I love that too and everything. And so Jesus just kind of fits conveniently in. But what he said was something a little bit more uh, in total contrast, I guess, to them what we just heard. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. I was encouraged a couple weeks back, you know, um, uh, Jeff Dion's been our uh, director of men's ministries for a number of years here. And I really appreciate uh, Jeff is a, a gentle but tenacious person. And those words don't usually go together. Jeff, Jeff's pretty laid back, but he's very persistent. He's like a dripping faucet sometimes. <laughs> Just kidding. Welcome to the team, Jeff. I'll pick on you too. So um, and, uh, one of the things that Jeff's been saying to our men over and over, I don't know, ladies, if you've figured this out or not, but guys don't do friendships a whole lot. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. 
You know, we kind of prefer our garage time or leave me alone to watch the game. Uh, friendship is like we actually went and saw a movie in the same room, that kind of thing. That's about what we as guys do for friendships. And so Jeff has been very consistent. Guys, get with another guy. Find a guy who needs to be brought up. Find a guy who can bring you up. Have a, His statement is always have a cup of coffee with that person. And I, I see sometimes a struggle with guys like, that just seems weird. Am I going to some other dude? Can I take you out for coffee? It just feels weird. And so he's been dripping that over and over and over and then angling. How can I help move? You know, it's like herding cats, us men, you know, as much as we hate cats, we behave like them so often. And Jeff's got to lead us along and stuff. And then so finally, a couple weeks ago, he said, um, I'm going to invite um, some men that I think get it, that are looking out uh, for the lives of other men who I think could raise up other men to a different level in their walk with Christ. There's so many more he could have drawn from, but he said, I want a realistic invitation. And uh, really about half of the people I think Jeff, he invited were the ones that came and some of the ones that couldn't make it said, Count me on this list, whatever it is, because I believe in this, I'm active in it, but I just can't go to the meeting. And so we had about 15 guys, if I'm not mistaken, and I looked around the room going, okay, you can do stuff with these 15 guys. I mean, they were there, and I've seen them already about this in other men's lives, and it was picking up, and Jeff laid out a really simple plan and said, there's no rocket science to this book I'm giving you, but if you need material, it's right here. If you've got your own thing, that's fine, but what we want to see is men challenging men to take the next step in their journey towards Christ, to be Christ-like. And there's no formula to that and everything. And the response has been great. The, the journey is already beginning and people are taking us up on that invitation. So much of that has already been happening that we didn't even really realize or know about because it wasn't uh, part of a program. But that's an example of some of the ways that we are taking discipleship seriously in this church and, and, and doing it by intention as opposed to just expecting it's going to land in our laps. That's not the way it works. We go after these things. So this is a part of the strategy, part of the vision, if you will, that we're laying out that we're going to continue to wrestle with, continue to, to flesh out why. Because Paul tells Timothy in the last part of this verse, in verse 15, he says that the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And the pillar holds up our doctrine of Jesus is the, the only way to salvation, that he is the only life. There's no one that gets to the Father except through him that we hold up the gospel high. But then that buttress is sort of that leaning thing that strengthens a wall or in this instance, even maybe that pillar that's a buttress of practice. That we aren't just going to be good about proclaiming the truth. There's lots of places that can say, this is what the Bible says, Bible says, Bible says, Bible says, but they have no practice. There's no season with grace. There's no gentle tone. There's none of those things so that all people hear is the shouting and the noise. And they're like, all I, all I see is people happy that they're right about something. But what they'll start seeing differently as the, the beauty of the bride walks into the room in all of her splendors when they say, these people actually live it. They, they say they believe in the truth and they, they can articulate what that truth is. They, they're clear on that, but they actually challenge themselves to walk in it. I like how John Piper talks about the potential of, of this bride. And we'll close with this. Basically, he's saying, could you imagine the church being God-exalting, Christ-admiring, spirit-filled, Bible enjoying, grace preaching, convenience defying, 
cross-embracing, risk-taking, selfishness, crucifying, gossip, silencing, prayer, saturating, future thinking, outward-reaching, and beautifully human congregations where the undeserving can thrive. This is what Christ died for. He loves us. He loves us so much that he'll take us as we are, stained and blemished and wrinkled and not ready for the wedding day at all. And he says, I'll clean you up and I'll make you ready. I'll get you fitted to your dress and you will drop their jaws when you walk into the sanctuary. This is the the aspects and the glimpses we get in nights like we had last night and opportunities that we have coming forward. But this isn't contained to an event. This is who we are 24-7. This is the calling that we have. Would you stand and join me in prayer? Lord God, I want to thank you for all that you've accomplished this morning. Thank you, Lord, for a sweet time around the communion table. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand all that you've done, the access that you've given to us. Lord, all that you've paid for and cleaned and cleansed within us so that the only thing that really is dirty for the person of Christ is the feet from the dust and the travel and the mistakes that we make along the way. You've purified us and made us right before you. Thank you, Lord, for sacrificing yourself for your bride. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We are blemished. We are wrinkled. We are not fitting for your gaze and your attention, Lord, but you give it to us anyway because of what you did. You see your finished work over us, and we're complete in that. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for using this congregation as a specific aspect of your bride, Lord, in such profound and powerful ways. Bless your people as they go out today, Lord. Encourage them. Help them to find these opportunities and then and surrender to the difficult task of seeing them through. Give them the grace. Give them the endurance and the encouragement to see it through. In Jesus' name, amen.